WWF In Your House 3 took place at the Saginaw Civic Center in Saginaw, Michigan. It drew 6,500 fans and it was September 24th, 1995. Don't have any money revenue to talk about here. It's not public, but here we are. Matt, we're talking WWF 1995. You teased last week. Oh boy, what a time for the WWF in 1995, huh? <laughs> boy, what, what a time for Vince McMahon in general. Oh, yeah. You know, we're coming off the, the rock and wrestling era, coming off the steroid, you know, steroid controversy, and because of that, the days of Hogan and Warrior and Savage are gone, and we're in the new generation era, as people like to call it. So we're in between Attitude and the rock and wrestling era, and even for a generation, every year of that generation puts emphasis on the word new, because they're all very different from one another. Very to kind of give my thoughts on this era, this was an era I paid close attention to. Like you said, we're right in the new generation era. We have the click in full force here, and we're definitely going to talk about that. And I was a Shawn Michaels mark. I, I was a huge Shawn Michaels fan. This was something like, I didn't think it was the best wrestling WWF did. In fact, it's one of the worst eras, especially when it comes to revenue for WWF. This era almost put WWF out of business, quite frankly, because... We were still in between, like you said. We still had occupations as characters in this. I mean, come on, Matt. That went away. Like, Dusty Rhodes was doing this in the WWF back in 88, 89. And he's still doing it here with Trashmen, with Plumbers. We have yeah, a goon here from hockey. Like, yeah, what the fuck is this man thinking here? Yeah, you've got old, some old habits die hard. And I think the thing to look at is there's one... And if I was to put myself in Vince McMahon's head, which is a scary place to be, <laughs> uh, I would not stay there more than a ten count, is that he was throwing shit at the wall and seeing what stuck. Isaac Yakum, Duke the Dumpster Drozzy, the Godwins, you still had a lot of goofy shit. Yeah. But the one constant that always worked was The Undertaker. Very theatrical, very over the top. Would not fit in WCW. But for some reason... No matter the era, they always found a way to incorporate that character and make it work. And I think because of that, Vince felt justified with still doing some of the hokey and borderline absurd characters that we were still getting throughout this period. Now, that doesn't mean all of them were crap, because some of the best characters that I think around this time, Razor Ramon, that was a great character. We were on the heels of getting Goldust. We'll yeah, they were advertising him in this pay-per-view. Yeah. So we'll definitely have a lot to say about that once he makes his debut. Uh, you had Jeff Jarrett as a country singer before this. It, it, it was a very strange time. But then you had guys like Bret Hart, very stripped down. His character was, I'm just a great performer. Shawn Michaels, very theatrical with his outfits and his style. But he wasn't an over-the-top character, per se. It, it's just, it's very strange, because you look at... Look at 1993, because we've we got to talk a little bit about what the WWF had gone through before we got to this point. 93, you had Hogan officially go out the door. He had his last match. He put over Yokozuna at King of the Ring 93. And for all intents and purposes, you never thought you'd see Hulk Hogan in a ring for under Vince McMahon ever again. After. Nope. Between WCW and all the animosity, the fact that when we get to 2002 and he actually came back is an event in and of itself. But Yokozuna was going back to the 
80s larger-than-life monster heels. And he was very effective at that. 94, they went back to Bret Hart as the face of the company, which they had teased in 92 when he beat Flair. But it always seemed like Vince was like, I really don't want to fully commit to this. Because not only did he have Yokozuna, as I mentioned on last week's show, he tried to make Lex Luger into his new Hogan. And if you watch SummerSlam 93, that is a disaster because they celebrated like he won the title, even though he won by countout. I can't wait to get to that event. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, it seemed like WrestleMania 10 was the real start of the new generation because Brett was put over as strong as you could do for a guy that size. And throughout 94, he was the guy. You know, he had great matches with everybody, mostly his family, between, you know, Owen and the Bulldog. But then Vince McMahon, as we know, he's got a hard-on for big guys. And I think the moment Kevin Nash stepped foot in that company, he got harder than those microphones he grabbed uh, all those years on commentary. (laughs) Because not only did Diesel win every championship in 1994, he was the longest-running world champion since the rock and wrestling era. By the time this show came around, he was champion for 10 months. So... As I said, like, you know, it's the great constant. Some habits are hard to break. With business being what it was, I think Vince felt certain safety in going to bigger guys because that's what made him popular. But I think by this point, you're starting to see the uh, the error in giving him that, that run as long as it was. Yeah, they lost money in the in that run. I, it was the lowest grossing champion at that time, and I believe still to this day. And I want to ask you, you know, we're definitely going to talk a lot about Kevin Nash when we get to the NWO. He had a lot of things to say about this era once he left the WWF and went to Bischoff's WCW. Nash, like you said, I mean, Vince McMahon had a hard-on for him and made him champion, had him beat Bob Backlund in like six seconds or something like that. Here he is as a champion. How do you feel about Kevin Nash, Diesel, as a whole? Uh, so I have to draw the line between Diesel and Kevin Nash because I, I I differentiate between the two as a WCW fan. Obviously, Nash is he's very charismatic. He was literally Big Daddy Cool, mm-hmm. and I think he was despite the click, which we'll talk about definitely mm-hmm. that we that we're doing these shows. He seemed like he would do whatever Vince wanted him to do. But you look at his title run. And it's not hard to see why business was down. Because you look at, he had a dud of a match with Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania when the dynamic of that was off. Because he's defending against a heel that everybody deep down wanted to see win. And Diesel was being booked as a seven-foot Hogan dressed in black. Because he was doing Monster of the Week shit. Whether it was, oh god, that that match with Mabel at SummerSlam where Kevin Nash... Kevin Nash almost, like, broke his back. Yeah. Because he was, Mabel was so, like, reckless. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it wasn't a great time for in-ring work in your main event scene, but luckily you had guys like Brett, Sean, Razor, Owen on the peripheral to, to help compensate for that. But But deep down, I think when you look at Diesel's run, I don't think the ends justified the length. And I, I'm not going to call myself a Kevin Nash mark, 
fight. He's one of my favorite people to listen to. Yeah, uh, positively. He's, he's, got, he's got a great mind for the business, always has, and he's admitted when he's fucked up, which, mm-hmm. you know, when we get to the, the WCW, we'll oh, definitely yeah. talk about that. But he was, he did his job, I think, to the best of his ability. Like, he was never the most dynamic guy in the ring. Before John Cena, he had his five moves of doom. You know, the elbows in the corner, yeah. the big boot, the big boot, the sidewalk slam. To his credit, he still has the best power bomb, I think, of anybody outside of, like, Vader. His always looked good, but I just think there were there were instances where he could have dropped the belt before he did. Would it have affected business all that much? Who knows? But I think it would have it would have maybe helped bring new eyes. Because I think people did tune out the longer it went on, especially when you watch, like, some of, some of his matches were just were just bad. <laughs> oh, man, him versus Sid? Oh, God, it'll it'll put you to sleep. Yeah, I'm much of the same mind with you. I think he does have a brilliant mind for the business. In fact, Bischoff was to the point where there were so many things coming at him that he was like, fuck it, you book. I'm done with this shit. And we'll definitely talk about that when we get to it. But he had a, Bischoff noticed that he had a mind for the business. I think you're right. I think at this point he was a puppet for Vince McMahon. And by the way, when we get to WrestleMania 11, we're going to fight because I really like that diesel Shawn Michaels match. I think uh, we have a much better one that we'll talk about in April of 96. Definitely. But I still hold the other one. I still hold the Mania match high uh, in that regard. But yeah, even though he was the lowest grossing champion, I, despite what people like Jim Cornette and you know some other people out there will tell you, I don't think you can hold all that against Kevin Nash. I think when Kevin Nash is booked against people like King Mabel, and you know, and we have a heel turn in this one that we'll talk about, I don't think that. The fact that he had bad opponents can be held against him. I shouldn't say bad opponents, just opponents that were badly booked against him. And a lot of the the stuff around this time, the bad, if you want to call it that, was not exclusive to the main event scene. No. As I mentioned, you had a lot of really outdated gimmicks. You had Bret Hart. You know, this was the Clicks influence. He's on matches with, on big shows with guys like Isaac Yankum. I'm sure that guy never went anywhere. <laughs> Uh, and, and, you know, even on this show, he's on the undercard. But you know what? Bret Hart consistently had great matches. And yeah, I want to say, in this run, I want to have a lot of negative things to say about Bret Hart. I'm just one of those people who, and I think you and I are kind of on the same wavelength like this, I think he needs to shut his fucking mouth. I think the business did so much for him that he is failing to recognize. And I think when you make it all about you... You look like a complete asshole, and he's done that. Two things. Go One, ahead. it's amazing you and Adam are friends, because he's, he's a Bret Hart mark. Oh, me and him would fight like this all the time. That's why I want him on the Mania 12 show, because this is the fight we had constantly. Because I was a huge Michaels mark. He was a fucking Bret Hart mark. He had Bret Hart posters. He had a standee. He had a lot of fucking Bret Hart shit. So my second point is that I don't think there's a bigger mark for themselves than Bret Hart. Yeah. I, I think, so my, my thoughts on Bret Hart, I'll, I'll get this out there now. As proficient a performer as you will ever see, but it wasn't until 1997 where he became an interesting character. Mm-hmm. He got over on his work, on his matches. There's nothing wrong with that, but the reason I don't put him in, like, my top ten, let's say, is that... I put stock in 
can you get me invested beyond just the in-ring product? And a lot of his best feuds were with guys who were more flamboyant than he was. Obviously, Sean is the the yin to his yang. They will always be tied together, no matter what. But he could work with anybody. That was that was his strength. You'll see it on this show. But I've I've never thought of Brett as like an all time guy for for me personally. And I feel the same way about Shawn Michaels, to be perfectly honest, but for different reasons. I don't think he... I'm tired of the WWE election machine of propaganda trying to sell you on him being the greatest of all time. I think that's just utter bullshit. Great performer, absolutely. Uh, I'm starting to sound like Jim Cornette. Uh, I might as well just just break out the impression now. Uh, But, you know, I think both of them were their own worst enemies. And I think both have unbelievable pros. My GOAT of this period, for me, and maybe more so than any other guy in WWE, is The Undertaker. When I think of who is the the most important person for that company, I will always say Undertaker because longevity, versatility, loyalty, locker room leader... Big time matches, did whatever he was asked, and he's got the name that's almost as big as Hogan and, you know, Andre. Like, you say the name Undertaker to people, I think more often than not, they'll associate with wrestling. Yeah, my fiancé knows who he is, and she doesn't um, even watch wrestling. But, but yeah, I think he he's the person I think of this era. Like, you know, you think of trios, like Hogan, Savage, Warrior, Undertaker, Michaels, Brett for this period for me, and then, you know, you got Rock Austin a couple years later. So... Despite being the bad period, though, before I go off on another tangent, there was still good stuff around this time. The one thing I loved is that titles still meant something. Mm -hmm. It was the crux of this show, but also you got, if you were in a world title match, you got one match at an in-your-house pay-per-view. And when you lost, if you lost, you were right back to square one, unless you were Psycho Sin. Um, (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, they tried it twice on the two shows before this, and... uh, Mm -hmm. But, but you know, still, it, you can't say they, WWF had a lack of talent. They had a very good roster. It was just bad booking, outdated gimmicks, and running with someone that didn't have the, mo- the biggest marketing ability. Two points on two people you just mentioned. One, when it comes to Bret Hart, I will say, even with my feelings about him, I think the first in your house had Bret Hart and Hakushi, which is a great match. Bret Hart had a great match with the one two three kid that pretty much, if you hear Sean Waltman talk in interviews, he still says to this day that's the match that made him after Razor Ramon. Tremendous match. I just watched that recently. It's from 94. I think it was around the time of the King of the Ring, 94. Great match. Bret Hart on this show has a great match. He still had those great matches that really stood out on these cards, even though the click was running around and shitting in fucking sunny sandwiches. My second point, Undertaker. The tendency had to be there around mid to late 96. I think if Bischoff would have been able to sign The Undertaker, the wars would have been over. I think you're absolutely right where he is the one that holds that locker room together, and he would have been somebody who could hold those politics to ground level besides being up above the ceiling like they usually were over there. The tendency had to be there. The money had to be there. Like, WWF was getting their asses kicked. And I'm sure Bischoff threw an offer out there 
And the fact that he remained loyal to Vince McMahon through all of it says a lot about The Undertaker, and I think The Undertaker deserves all the praise, not only for being loyal, but for being the constant on that show. All the way through, he retired, what, 2020, 2021, something like that? Uh, 20, 2020. 2020, yeah. I will give all credit in the world to Undertaker, and you, and you watch any interview show on the network, or I keep saying the network, on Peacock, you know, with Austin's Broken Skull Sessions, all those shows, they all give all the credit in the world to The Undertaker, to the point where Kevin Nash said on his interview with Austin that the morning of their match at WrestleMania, Undertaker got served divorce papers. So Undertaker said, this is all on you. You do whatever you need to do. You lay out this match. I'm a little busy with stuff. And, you know, him and Undertaker eventually laid the whole thing out. But that professionalism that comes with The Undertaker is why he will always be on my Mount Rushmore of wrestling. Although he's not on this show, unfortunately. No, and I thought that was interesting. I I, I was shocked to not see him here. Yeah, because I associate him with the WWF so much that every time he's not on a show... Where, you know, it's not like he was injured at this time. No. Uh, at least I don't... Was this before or after he started wearing the mask? This was right before. Because Mabel would jump on his face, yeah, around December. So, yeah, it was right before. It was like a leg drop gone bad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. His absence, I think, is, is felt on this show. Definitely. Well, let's talk about this show. First match... We have Sabia Vega versus Waylon Mercy. <laughs> You're already laughing. Now, I want to talk about Waylon Mercy a bit. This was a character I loved as a teenager, and I was hoping it would take off. Because it was based off of, if you listen to his cadence and listen to him talk, it's based off Max Cady from Cape Fear with Robert De Niro. But Dan Spivey was hobbled by injuries around this time, and his, this character ended up going out with a whimper. Know what I mean? But this was a character I really enjoyed in promos and things. It's a shame it didn't take off. You laughing, you, uh, you probably didn't see anything in this character, huh? No, I, I saw the, the Max Cady stuff because I've, I've watched that Cape Fear movie so many times. It's also the, the precursor for the Bray Wyatt character of modern day. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. Um, you could definitely see that. It's just weird that I think Vince can be both his... The, the, he's, he knows everything about wrestling, but he knows nothing about wrestling. Yeah. Because, but he knows nothing about pop culture, because that movie came out four years before this. I know. A little bit behind the curve, but what kills this match is Mercy's style. Yeah, um, let's get to it. So, Savio, he started, he's in control with some punches, and then he gets an arm ringer, and then takes him down in arm drag. Uh, Mercy, he comes back with a knee to the ribs, followed by a clothesline. They leave the ring with Mercy giving Vega a body slam on the floor. And then Wayne and Mercy lifts him up to a stun gun onto the top rope. But, man, that was a bad spot. It looked really sloppy. Well, yeah, it, that one always... It's like the timing was off because he, he hit it. He was closer to his throat than he should have been when he connected with the rope. But what works about this match and this show, this commentary team... Yes. This when Vince was still doing commentary... You had a still relatively green Jim Ross for WWF. Yeah, uh, he had been absent. Be, the last pay-per-view he had done before this, I believe, was not King of the Ring. Royal Rumble 94, he had like one match. That was the last time he was on a pay-per-view. 
And uh, this is, I, I miss this Jerry Lawler. Me too. Uh, when I listen to his old stuff, nowadays he sounds like such a cartoon. You know, he became puppies. Mm-hmm. That's what he was known for. But here, like, if you watch the Jake the Snake DVD, he ripped on him for being a drunk constantly. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, God, yeah. On this show, during this match, where he's like, you know the uh, the state motto of Arkansas? Hey, at least we're not Oklahoma, JR. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Vince was, Vince is a very underrated commentator. Um, I agree. Yeah. I used to always make fun of his two counts when I was a kid. One, two, One, he's out, he's out. <laughs> One, two, and no. He got him, he got him. No, yeah, he didn't. He's out, he's out. <laughs> um, but you could tell that he he still knew how to, how to tell stories, even when the in-ring stuff was not great. Because I think these three work really well together. And obviously, in a couple of years, you know, Vince will become a full on-screen character yeah. and not necessarily do commentaries, so... JR had to do more of the, the heavy lifting because in this match, they're just, you know, commentating on, on their appearances. It, it's a good distraction because a lot of the in-ring stuff here is is not great. Yeah, I agree with you about Vince McMahon. And, you know, I, I was listening to Jim Ross's podcast and he was asked, I mean, did it bother you that Vince McMahon would do these shows? And Jim Ross had a great point where he said it didn't bother me because... If anyone would know how to sell his own people, it would be the boss himself. If he knew, if anyone knows how to sell the pay-per-views on the Raws and whatnot, it's going to be the guy who is putting it together. So I, I thought that was a, one, a great point that I didn't really think about, where if you're in the weeds like Jim Ross is, you're, you're seeing your boss actually doing all the selling for the pay-per-views. So, Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the advantages of having... A match with no heat, Matt, is you get to do storylines in the midst of them. And that's what we got going on here, where Doc Hendricks is interrupting this match, saying that Owen Hart is not here, and they have no idea why. Do you know why he's not there? Well, it's very confusing, because they don't give a reason specifically on this show, I don't think. But but he was his wife was having yes. a baby. Yeah, uh, his wife. So yeah. I guess... He, he got there like the last possible instant. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, that that definitely explains why the main event happens the way it does. It's always weird seeing Michael Hayes as another, under another name. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he will always be a free bird no matter Absolutely. what. Absolutely, yeah. You put on him. Uh, I thought this was a great running angle throughout the show of, like, who's going to be the, is the match going to happen? And if it does, you know, can Cornette and company find a, a suitable partner, but it's almost like they knew that this match was not not going to be yeah. because you got you had a debuting character who was not really dynamic in the ring, and Savio Vega was dependable, but you were never going to make him a top guy. No, so let's finish this dud of a match. Mercy gets a sidewalk slam for a two count, and then he goes for a running elbow drop. Vega moves, and Mercy hits the mat. And you're right; these two styles are just not meshing at all. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, Mercy applies a sleeper, and then he makes some crazy faces. And Savio, he drives Mercy into the top rope to break free. And then Mercy grabs another sleeper. Like, this, this is bad. <laughs> yeah, it's slow. It's plotting. Yeah. Uh, it kind of kills the crowd. They pop for the finish, which is good. Yeah. Vega gets out of the sleeper with a belly-to-back suplex. Great move. We saw that last week. 
when we were talking about Pillman and Johnny B. Bad. And then he gets him with a headbutt, and which leads to a boot to the face. Vega then hits a standing heel kick to knock Mercy down. He runs the ropes and gets a running bulldog for two. And then Vega hooks the shoulder head into a pin attempt. Uh, Mercy comes back with a kick followed by a clothesline. And then he hits a real sloppy looking brain buster, which when you're in a brain buster, you don't need those looking sloppy. Yeah, that's like the last, that's the last move you want to have unprotected. Mercy then hits another uh, belly to back suplex for two. And then Vega gets a bridging German suplex for a two count. And then he bounces off the ropes with a jumping spinning heel kick for a pinfall win at seven minutes and six seconds. Another one that just seemed like 20 minutes, huh? Yeah, it does. It's just, it's the opposite of Fall Brawl where this, uh, yeah. this was not a overly strong way to start. I mean, the crowd popped, which is a good thing. So it, it wasn't a complete wash, but... When, when your audience is sitting on your hands for your opener, mm. it, it's not a good template to start on. Yeah, this is something that WCW would really... It, it, if, if we were to do a scorecard of what WCW did better, which, you know, in the beginning is a lot, by the end isn't much, but their opening match would always get the crowd into it. Um, this one didn't handle that very well. So we then get a video package with Gorilla Monsoon talking to Jim Cornette, along with Yokozuna and Mr. Fuji. God, I love Mr. Fuji. Uh, Cornette says that Owen will be there. And then Doc asks Gorilla that if Owen's not there, will the triple threat take place? And Gorilla says, yes, it will. So more on this storyline later. <laughs> they, they should have, Jim Cornette uh, is one of my favorite main uh, he is yeah. a He is a vocal artist. Mm-hmm. Especially if you've seen the Dairy Queen video. That's one of my favorite things. Oh, it's tremendous. He cut a promo on this girl in a Dairy Queen window, the likes of which you you have never seen. And he's got a whole story behind it. Too. It's amazing. Yeah, it, you know, I almost want to put that as an attachment to this to this video. But like, this is a guy who lives, sleeps, and breathes professional wrestling. Yep, I truly believe when if Vince Russo dies before him, he will go to his grave and legitimately piss on it. You have texted uh, me that so many times. I believe you've texted to me drunk. <laughs> Uh, but like he's his podcast is great. Uh, yeah, Cornette's Cornette's drive through, which is yep. perfect. But here, you know, he was coming, he was coming over from you know the dark side. But he comes up to the north, and he's still. I mean, he's over because he's so obnoxious that you have to hate whoever he's representing. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he wore those bright suits and the the, the tennis racket. You know, he played. He's almost like the if he was a character, like if Vince gave him a character, he'd be a lawyer. Like, he's like Saul Goodman before Saul Goodman was a thing. One of my favorite lines that Jim Cornette ever said was, he said that Ricky Morton did an investigation into his family tree and found out he was the sap. (laughs) (laughs) He he is just so, so tremendous. And every time he's on the mic, it just, it always makes me giggle. Yeah, and and Yokozuna was, he had two managers. Yeah, Uh, yeah. He's got Cornette Cornette and he's got Mr. Fuji, because... Uh, as we'll find out, when you gave Yokozuna a microphone... It didn't work. wasn't a great idea. He, nope. he worked much better. You know, he was kind of like what Undertaker started out as, where Paul Bearer did all the talking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Fuji didn't really speak great English. Uh, and when he did, nobody wanted to listen to him. So they yeah. got, And Cornette, they even called him, like, his American interpreter. It was <laughs> his, his official title. And I, I loved Owen and Yokozuna as a tag team. You know, I always resent thrown together tag teams but 
the dynamic of the big guy and the small guy always works, especially when you compare them to Diesel and Sean. It, it definitely made sense. And his return at WrestleMania 11, where it was a mystery partner. Mm, yeah. And Yokozuna, which was cool because they both have history with Brett. It makes sense that he'd go to, like, the enemy of the enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. And, and they were champs from WrestleMania up to this point. Like, they, they had beaten Luger and Bulldog in Luger's last match. Yeah, I want to bring up Luger as we get deeper into this. But <laughs> let's go to our next match. We got Psycho Sid with Ted DiBiase versus Henry O. Godwin. So, Sid. Um, Hog. Get it, Matt? Henry O. Godwin? Hog? Okay, yep. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, here's the thing about Sid. All right. I don't think there's been a guy in wrestling who has a better pure look. Than Absolutely. Him. Like, if, if he looks like a gladiator in ancient Greece. Yeah. Um, I think he he always... It's not that he's not a main eventer. It was just that when you left him to his own devices, especially if it was a live microphone, it tended not to go very well. And WWF, they, they really... He, he was much better in WCW in either of his runs. Well, more so the early ones. Because like, he had been there earlier. He main evented with Hogan. He comes back as Sean's new bodyguard. Uh, when he had the split from Diesel, and then Sid turned on Sean, so now Sid is a heel again. He's with the Million Dollar Corporation. He was really the only main eventer in that group, because the rest of them, it was like King Kong Bundy and Tatanka, Bam Bam Bigelow. So Sid at least added credibility for DiBiase's stable. But you put him against Henry Godwin, yeah. Uh, and this match, the, the build-up was he threw slop on him. Like yeah. we're still we're still in that era where it's like we have to find flimsy ways to set mm. up set up matches. Yeah, just a pay per view or two before this, we we mentioned a couple podcasts when we started this thing in our preview mat in our preview podcast. You know, we were talking about our favorite botches, and one of my favorite botches I didn't even mention was a couple pay per views ago. Where have you heard about this one? Where he's getting interviewed by Jim Ross. And, no. oh, God, uh, I'm going to send it to you. And <laughs> Sid is going on and on about Diesel, and then right in the middle of it, he's like, oh, I just lost my train of thought. And, <laughs> and like, Jim Ross looks... Are, are we live? Is Jim Ross like, looks at... Yeah, Jim Ross looks at him and goes, we're live, pal. Hate <laughs> yeah, Sid was always much better than live Sid, because there's the uh-huh. this line all the time, I am half the man that you are, and I have half the brain that you do. <laughs> <laughs> and people forget he was a horseman. You know, I mean, he had a quite a run, like you mentioned, in WCW, especially the early run. The early run was tremendous. Yeah, um, uh, a pair of scissors ended that very quickly. Well, yeah. Every time he appears, like when uh, Jen walks in, every time he's on the screen, she always calls him Top Ramen Head. That's that's not a bad comparison. <laughs> but but you saying, oh, he was a horseman, that's like saying someone was in the NWO. You're like, not wrong. Everybody was in the fucking... Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, one more Sid story before we get to this match is, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I dated somebody whose mom dated Sid. No, um, you didn't. Yeah, it was like, this was in 99, and she told me that when she laid on the floor and Sid was like on the couch, like she would look and his feet were so fucking big. Like he had, he was like the most massive dude ever, but sweet dude, like really nice guy. And you know what? She didn't even know any of the stories, but guess what? She would say, yeah, for some reason he played softball a lot. <laughs> well, I wouldn't take him as a gymnast. Positively. Especially uh, if it's 
love doing big boots off the middle rope and you put them in the oh, ring. Oh, yeah. Steiner. Yeah, definitely. We'll get to that eventually. So here we have Henry Godwin. He starts off aggressive. He's got a, he slams Sid's head into the mat. Sid's on the apron, so Godwin hits him with a clothesline off the apron to the floor. Got Henry O'Godwin gets him with a suplex back into the ring. And Henry's trying a body slam, but he's he's selling a back injury here. And, man, the crowd just does not give a shit. And all the face pops are going to Sid here. Yeah, and he's doing a good job of selling the, the back injury. He is. Yeah. Uh, the commentators are selling it well. But, but yeah, it's weird that Sid went from main eventing the last two in your houses <laughs> to... to He's now in the second match in a nothing feud with Henry Godwin. Henry Godwin, exactly. Sid hits Henry with an axe handle off the apron to the floor. He does it again. And then back in the ring, Sid's getting him with punches to the ribs, followed by a hard whip to the corner. Sid then hits that hits a running kick that should have been remained on the mat and not on the top rope. Right, Matt? I mean, he does so many double axe handles in this match. I'm surprised Randy Savage didn't <laughs> <have to laughs> him. For copyright infringement. <laughs> Sid then applies a chin lock to work over the back and neck a bit. And we get another chin lock to just kill this crowd. I mean, this crowd could care less. Yeah, as far as, like, the the pacing of this event, you could not have started off on a slower note between these, these two opening matches. Yeah. Um, and and th- the way this match is orchestrated feels like something you would see at, like, a house show where it's, all the cliched stuff. The baby yep. fake selling a back injury. You got the heel inter- the heel manager interfering on the corner. A lot of it's... No, none of it is really that impressive either. Like, it's not mm-hmm. even... Sid charges, but Henry moves. And then Sid has his leg against the rope, and Henry comes back with a punch to the ribs. Henry then runs the ropes, leading to a shoulder tackle. He then hits the slop drop. And then he turns his legs to Ted DiBiase. So we know what's coming here as Ted DiBiase pulls his legs to break all this up. Back in the ring, Henry Henry gets some punches and he runs the ropes and DiBiase trips Henry. The referee doesn't see it and here's Sid with a leg drop to the head. That leg drop looked painful, by the way. He got some air on that fucking thing. That looked like it was a, it was a concussion waiting to happen. Absolutely. Sid then hits the powerbomb. And pins Henry Godwin at 7 minutes, 23 seconds. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. Oh, man. Yeah. Not, not, you're right, Matt. Not a good way to start this pay-per-view here. No, and, and it's just... It's, it's unfortunate for Sid that this was the spot. Like, I mean, look, his matches with Nash were not great. But to go from that to this... And then a year plus later, he's going to win the world title and main event WrestleMania. Like it's a mm. his career is a roller coaster of highs and lows. Speaking of highs and lows, when Sid, the Sid and DiBiase they have the slot bucket, but here comes Bam Bam Bigelow to run out for the save. Kama holds Bigelow, and Sid punches Bigelow repeatedly, but Henry grabs the slot bucket, and guess what? There's DiBiase to get it get the slop bucket because that's how you get your heat back is you hit D- Ted DiBiase with slop. Yeah, I give it this. The fans loved it. They did pop for this. Oh, yeah, but this might as well have been something that, like, you would have seen Junkyard Dog do in the 80s. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, like, like, this is one of those things where Vince really wasn't changing with the times. Mm. And it's kind of interchangeable between the stuff you would see in, like, WCW with the Dungeon of Doom. Like, it's that level of, like, all right, can we move on, please? Yeah. So there's a backstage interview with Gorilla Monsoon, and 
Jim Cornette, where Jim Cornette is complaining about the fact that this match is going to take place. Monsoon tells Cornette that he could get Yokozuna to defend against both men, or Monsoon will, think, will sanction someone else to defend the titles with him if Cornette can get them. So Cornette's wondering who he can get. Uh, Monsoon tells him that he, can, he has time. Go find a partner. And then he says that the deal for the match is still on. Cornette says that he'll find somebody. So you're liking the storyline, huh? Yeah, although it's uh, a little bit telegraphed. There was some kind of editing botch where they talk about the Bulldog before that segment aired. So it kind of kind of plays its hand a bit. Well, here we go. We're uh, speaking of the Bulldog. He's in for the next match. He's facing Bam Bam Bigelow. And yeah, but, uh, we're seeing clips. Literally fresh off his heel turn. Yeah, yeah. I was about ready to say. Well, this is when we're getting clips of when Bulldog turns against Diesel. And, um, you know, he, we know he's a bad guy, Matt, because he's gone from long hair to shorter hair. Uh, yeah, the, I, the cosmetic changes in, in, uh, in wrestling turns is one of my least favorite cliches. Like, how do you know if someone becomes a heel in the indies? They start wearing sunglasses. Funny story here. This was supposed to be Luger. Bulldog was going to turn on Luger, and they were going to get a big feud going. But Luger ended up leaving town. So we're going to have Bulldog. Bulldog's going to get a world title shot as a result of it. All right, so in this match, Bigelow is using his power early. He gets a shoulder tackle, and this leads to Bulldog just regrouping on the floor. I always love when heels do that. You know, they get hit with something by the good guy, and then they roll out of the ring to kind of regroup. I remember Ventura would always say, Jesse Ventura would always say when someone would do that, he goes, it's like a quarterback running out of bounds, not taking a hit. Kind of the same concept here. Yeah, and Lawler's really putting over Bulldog now that he's uh, now that he's a heel, even though he's related to Bret Hart by marriage. Yes. <laughs> but in the midst of this match, we're also getting we're getting an interview with Jim Cornette talking to Sid about teaming up with Yokozuna. Meanwhile, Bigelow he hits a hip toss on Bulldog, followed by a body slam, and then Bulldog avoids the elbow drop. Bulldog gets in with a chin lock, and then he breaks free, and and then he avoids a headbutt. Bulldog comes back with a suplex, and Bigelow pops right back up with two clotheslines, and then Bigelow goes crashing over the top rope to the floor after Bulldog pulled the top rope down. Man, but Bigelow, rest in peace, that guy could fucking fly for a big dude. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was very unorthodox look, very unique ring style. Um, I mean, this is the guy who carried Lawrence Taylor to a tolerable match. I was just about ready to say that. So let's get to Bigelow. A few months earlier, he carries Lawrence Taylor to, I mean, I'm not going to say it was a great match, but it was an entertaining match, and it got the job done where, you know, Lawrence Taylor gets the win, and people who went there to see their New York Giant hero leave happy. He was promised after doing that job that he was going to be pushed. He does get with Diesel, and then... The King of the Ring 95, which is still considered one of the worst pay-per-views of all time, by the way. The final main event is him and Diesel teaming against, what was it, Sid, and I don't remember the other person in that match. Um, but he goes to that match. Oh, Tatanka. It was, it was Sid and Tatanka. He, yeah. He goes to that match, comes out, and it, if you talk to some people, you'll they'll say that the click was at its biggest power around this time and they were kind of trying to hold Bigelow down because they didn't think that Bigelow had any real star power to move. Um, there was just a great dark side of the ring with Bam Bam Bigelow, about Bam Bam Bigelow with his kids and I think his son talked about how his dad would mention that 
yeah, those guys were holding me down. What do you think about that? Do you think Bigelow could have had a good run here? Do you think the click hold held him down? What are your thoughts on that? I think the latter is definitely realistic. I mean, saying the click held people down is like saying, you know, Happy Days was a popular TV show. Everyone <laughs> knows it. Yeah. Uh, and some, some instances are more blatantly obvious than others. Um, but look at all of the major other players that were involved in WrestleMania. Undertaker, not on this show. Bret Hart has a match with a one-eyed man. You know, Bulldog is in the main event, but last minute. It's just, I think he could have, I don't think he could have been the guy. But I think Bam Bam definitely could have been someone that had a big match with Diesel. And certainly would have been, if he stuck around, a good person, a good dance partner for Brett and Sean when they mm. regained the main event scene. Because both of those guys had, had good resumes with people of that size. And Bam Bam could certainly move much better than someone like a Diesel. Uh, and we knew Bam Bam still had stuff in the tank. Look at his ECW run after this. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And if you look at King of the Ring 93, he had a great match with Bret Hart in that one, too. All right, so Bigelow suplexes Bulldog right on the top rope, growing first. That gets the crowd going a bit. Bulldog rolls into position as Bigelow goes up the top and hits a flying headbutt for a two-count. Bulldog gets a chop block to the back of the of Bigelow's left knee. Bulldog is hits repeated knee drops on that leg of of Bigelow, and then Bulldog wrenches on the left knee for a couple minutes and then backs gets back up with another chop block to the leg. You know, for a pay-per-view that is less than two hours, we're seeing a shit ton of rest holds here. And I'm all for rest holds, don't get me wrong. I love the drama behind rest holds. I think, you know, we're we're setting up that there's going to be a good comeback or whatnot. And I know what the the deal with rest holds is. It's in the title. You're resting. But, Matt, are there too many rest holds in this pay-per-view? Yeah, I think there are. And none of these guys were known for their submission prowess. So anytime they're they're using these, these rest holds... It feels out of place because, you know, Bulldog wasn't yet at the spot where his body was starting to break down. He could still do a lot of stuff, and Bam Bam was certainly very athletic. So much like the opening match, I think it's just a styles clash. You know, separately, these guys worked very well, but when you put them together, there's just not a lot of chemistry. Mm. Big Low comes back with an Enziguri to the head, and this is when Vince gives out a what a maneuver call. Yeah, that's a drinking game in and of itself. Yes, it certainly is. Bulldog then applies a half crab. Again, more rest holds. Big Low breaks free, hits a punch to the head and a headbutt. He then charges, but Bulldog's there with a knee to the ribs for a two count. Bulldog then goes in for a chin lock, another rest hold. And then Big Low is back up as he drives Bulldog to the turnbuckle. And then um, he hits him with a body slam. But Big Low is the one who ends up on top for two. Great near fall there. Bulldog then goes for a sunset flip. But Big Low sits down on the Bulldog, which, which the crowd loved. And then Big Low hits a headbutt. He goes on, top, on the top rope again. This time he tries a moonsault. And Bulldog moves. So Bigelow hits the mat, leading to Bulldog getting a two count, and then Bulldog goes on the top rope with a two with a headbutt for a two count. He whips Bigelow into the turnbuckle and then hits a power slam for the pin at 12 minutes and two seconds. Too long, too long for these two. You know we had that seven minute leeway with Waylon Mercy and Sagio Vega. I think that would have worked better for this one too. 
uh, could the same result could have been accomplished in half the time, uh, especially you know in hindsight, Bulldog pulls double duty on this show. Yeah, to have a ten plus minute match and then end up in that tag team match, what like a half hour, forty five minutes later, is pretty remarkable. I understand what they're doing here. You know, we're setting Bulldog up because he's going to have a world title match with Bret Hart in a couple months, but. You could have, like you said, we could have done it in less time than what it took here. We didn't get a commercial for WrestleMania the special. And I remember this. It aired on Fox. It was like an hour and a half version of WrestleMania. That's still too long because that show sucks. <laughs> that's, like, that's, a ba- that's a bad WrestleMania. <laughs> well, we'll get to it eventually. I definitely have my thoughts on it, too. But, also got the problem of being sandwiched in between 10 and 12. Yeah. Did that show take place in Chicago? No, WrestleMania 11 took place in Connecticut. Uh, WrestleMania 13 took place in Chicago. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, well, you know, Connecticut and Stink go really well together. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm cutting, I'm cutting my own promo on the city and the state of Connecticut at some point. I remember I had WrestleMania on tape because I watched the pay-per-view live with uh, my buddy Omar, who we used to watch uh, these wrestling events all the time together. So I didn't have any need to watch this special. I remember looking at this saying, what the fuck? But then I was like, you know what? Fox has WWE rights. I think they're just looking for something to put on. Yeah, you've got to fill out the airtime. Exactly. All right. So speaking of filling out the airtime, we get Bob Backlund out here. He's, uh, he's going for a promo. At this time in the storylines, he's running for president, quote unquote. Backlund says that everybody has to accept challenges to learn how to advance in their lives. He then keeps ranting, saying that your acute limitations become chronic limitations and you become stagnant. I love fucking Backlund around this era. <laughs> well, and this was, he was coming off, you know, the year before he had his big comeback against yep. Brett. Yep. He, oh, the, the I Quit match at Mania was garbage, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that match but, against, that match with him and Brett at uh, Survivor Series is pretty Survivor good, though. Series. No, that's yeah. a very good match. And then yeah. he won it to lose it to Diesel at a house show. <laughs> The next night. Yeah, it was like two nights later. Yeah. Uh, so Backlund then introduces somebody that he says is an administrator that disciples his students. He weighs 230 pounds. He's from the University of Knowledge. And here comes Dean Douglas, and the crowd goes mild. <laughs> well, that's a good way to put it. And uh, what a downgrade for Shane Douglas. Shane Douglas, interesting dude. You know, I remember him in the WWF in the... I think it was 1990, he was filling in for Shawn Michaels, who was out with an injury, uh, ironically, uh, on, uh, on the Rockers show, on the rock, in the Rockers matches around that time. Then he came to WCW, had a great run with Ricky Steamboat as his tag team partner. Uh, those are some great matches that he had with the Hollywood Blondes. Then he goes to, w, or goes to ECW, and I was never an ECW watcher. Maybe we'll do that on Patreon where I watch those shows with you. Those would be something I would watch for the very first time. But he became a big staple over there, and you watched the ECW around that time, didn't you? No, not at the time. Okay. Because it, it was difficult to find early on, and then eventually, well, once they got a TV deal, it wasn't, it wasn't the same. Uh, but Shane Douglas was literally the franchise like he was the guy who threw the belt down and got all that all the flack for do and all the controversy that was associated with that especially from the purists but i have never seen someone plagiarize a gimmick as much as triple h did for shane douglas the game is the franchise it is literally the blueprint like if you go back and watch you know i'm preaching to the, the unfamiliar but there's a lot of similarities between those two characters and he comes back, he goes to WWF. I mean, he's here for, like, blink and you miss it. Yeah. Basically. Terrible gimmick. This is one of those bad ones, a holdover from a bygone era. 
he got it over because, you know, snotty heels always... It's funny, when Triple H came to the WWF, he had a similar gimmick uh, of yep. the snob. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny how, how tied they are. But what got him over is he was all, he was always a great performer. And I think they if he stuck around, you probably could have gotten him in Backlund's uh, as like an upper like IC level champion consistently. This next match is, I mean, this whole event I should say is really the click at their highest. I think because what we're seeing here is we're seeing Razor Ramon versus Dean Douglas. Now, according to Shane Douglas, I talk like they're two different people. According to Shane Douglas, he um, the reason why he was bitter against the WWF for most of his career after he was released a couple months later was because he felt the click held him down. And Scott Hall was not a Dean Douglas fan. Scott Hall was a big proponent of bringing Shane Douglas in. But in this match, if you notice, Shane Douglas gets blown up. Yeah. And Scott Hall's having to slow down to, keep, to have Shane Douglas keep up with him. And that pissed Scott Hall off. And if you notice, as this match is going on, these blows get more and more stiff. <laughs> Oh, yeah, this almost turns into a shoot. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And he was also, you know, part of his release was that he he was working hurt, and he had, like, really bad muscle spasms. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wonder, even early on, if the seeds of that were here and he just didn't know it. But this was also sort of, like, the precursor to what Vince would do when he got established stars from other companies during the invasion. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's always had a certain amount of, you know, when you come back to me, you've got to work your way back to the top. I'm not just going to grant you your top spot unless your name is Hulk Hogan and I don't have a choice. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, and, and Razor was, I'm not going to say he was at the tail end, but they had, even though he was at the click, they really had nothing for him at this point. No, the um, the final six months or so of his run in WWF is really forgettable. I think the stuff with when we get to Goldust is pretty good. If Scott Hall would have stuck with it, I think it would have been even better. But you're right. Like after that, it's it's pretty forgettable. Um, but let's get to this. So Razor Ramon he knocks uh, Dean Douglas out of the ring with a clothesline. Douglas is back. He gets some punches, but Razor gets a hold of him and hits a hip toss over the top rope to the floor. And then we're showing Jim Cornette in the midst of this talking to King Mabel of all people. I was uh, like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the ring, we have Razor Ramon with a, uh, with a wrist lock on Douglas, and then he reverses it into an armbar. You know, people forget, Scott Hall was a great worker. Oh, God, yeah, he is. He's a, he was a big dude, but, man, he could work. Yeah, well, he had it all. Like, he, yeah. he had the look, he had the charisma, he could work in the ring. You know, he had great understanding of the business, but... You know, once his problems took hold, mm-hmm. uh, it was just it was so a unfortunate. Douglas, he flips out of this wrist lock and he jumps into Razor's arm so that Razor could hit a fallaway slam for a two count. Razor, he pulls on Dean Douglas's arm against the top rope, and then Razor hits an armbar that sees him lift Douglas over the top into the ring, followed by a clothesline. They do a pinfall exchange with Douglas getting a sunset flip for two. Followed by Razor Ramon, he hits a clothesline for another two count. What do you feel about near falls? I love uh, false finishes in these things. I, I think you know. I, I I think by this time we probably thought that it, it wasn't going to happen because you know we have to see the the finishing move in order for a pinfall to happen. But I think the way these matches are laid out, they're kind of exciting. 
Yeah, I think they they can be overused, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think near falls, especially around this time, people were indoctrinated to, bam, hit the finisher, that's the end of the match. Yeah. Um, giving that anything can happen sort of feel definitely makes these you know lower card matches feel more significant. Razor, he goes for an arm bar, and then Douglas hits some punches. Razor bounces off the ropes with a shoulder tackle, and Douglas sends Razor once again over the top to the floor. Douglas gets a to- gets a double axe handle to the back, and then drives Razor back first into the apron. Douglas then gets a body slam on the floor. Douglas goes back in to break the count, and then back out, and then gets a knee to the back to send Razor into the steps. Uh, at this point, the fans are really into it. They're chanting Razor. Douglas then sends Razor back into the ring. Douglas goes up top, hits a double axe handle to the back again for two. Razor comes back with a punch, so Douglas slams him down by the head. Dean Douglas then grounds Razor by pulling back on both arms. Again, rest holds here because by this point, Shane is blown up. Razor then counters it into an arm pulling of his own until Dean Douglas goes to the ropes. Douglas then whips Razor into both turnbuckles and hits a springboard splash off the middle rope for two as Razor continues to sell his back. A lot of selling in this, huh? This is the second second match where they're selling a vacuum. Yeah. Douglas has Razor trapped in a chin lock, and then Razor gets out of that after about a minute, and then falls back to slam Douglas down. Both guys are down selling for a bit. Razor comes back with punches, including the spin punch, and an overhead suplex for two. I always love that spin punch of Scott Hall's. Mm -hmm. Razor then sends Douglas into the turnbuckle. Razor... Tries to set up for a move, but Douglas fights back with a crossbody block, and Razor turns over into a pin attempt for another two count. Douglas shoves Razor into the referee on purpose. He punches Razor to knock him down. Douglas goes for a splash off the middle ropes. Razor moves and then hits the Razor's edge. And then here comes Sean Waltman, the one, two, three kid. He runs in. Uh, he counts the pin. Razor stands up thinking. Oh, yeah, the, the three count happened, but he didn't realize it was uh, one, two, three kid who actually did, did the three count. He looks at him, wondering what the hell he, he's doing, and then kid's saying, well, I just counted. I just counted the fall, and Razor shoves the kid out of the ring. This causes Douglas to regain his composure. He drives Razor into the ropes and gets a piss-poor-looking roll-up with the tights for a pinfall at 14 minutes and 54 yeah, seconds. He doesn't even hook the tights until the ref counted to two. Unbelievable. Like, this is bad. Terrible finish. I can see why Scott Hall would be pissed at this. I don't know. I think this match is competitive. I think it's very... I think it's good in spots. But, again, I think it's a little too long and too many rest holds. Yeah, and the, the heat is there, but it doesn't 100% work as a screw job finish. And again, it just shows the the click is the only thing that matters on this show. Because what's the big angle? It's dissension between Razor and the kid. Between Razor and Sean Wallman, exactly. <laughs> we're also, I mean, this is a big win for Shane Douglas, and we're getting him into the Intercontinental title picture because we are setting up Douglas versus Michaels. We're going to talk next week. That doesn't happen. So, again, like you said, we're getting more storyline here as he grabs one, two, three kid by the head and brings him into the ring, and then Razor slaps him, Kid slaps back, and officials have to break it up. So, yeah, you're right. We're just setting up Razor versus 1-2-3 Kid here. Don't worry about the Intercontinental title, which just changed hands. So in the middle of this pay-per-view, we're getting a commercial for the next pay-per-view in your house four. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, that's not a show you want to be promoting. <laughs> well, you definitely. And well, they're also not. hyping up Goldust debut, which, man, I, I know you have a lot to say, as do I. Oh, yeah. Well, the vignettes are great. Absolutely. So Diesel and Shawn Michaels, Diesel's WWF champion, Michaels is Intercontinental champion. They're being interviewed by Doc Hendricks, who's champion of the mic, am I right? Sean says that he's a bit frustrated that Owen Hart's not here and wonders what is happening. Diesel does say that something's up, but he doesn't care because the two dudes with attitudes will be four chaps with straps. Get it? Boy, really, you know, because there was all those rumors about Sean playing for the other team, and (laughs) innuendos like that really don't help. (laughs) They don't help at all. We have Jean-Pierre Lafitte in the ring. And they're showing highlights of what this match is about, Matt. And what is this match about? It's about accessories. John Pierre Lafitte stole Bret Hart's jacket. All right, so John Pierre Lafitte is an interesting dude in WWF history because he comes in with this pirate gimmick. And he's at a house show with Diesel having a title shot. Now, he is in Canada. This is the prelude to the Montreal Screwjob because guess what? Another Canadian is refusing to lose in front of his fans in Canada. Kevin Nash is getting pissed, and the click is kind of like, you know what, dude? Just do the job, and the guy, is re- he's refusing to do it. Finally, Vince McMahon is the one who calls and convinces him to do the job. The very next night, he's facing Diesel again, and he agrees to do it, But he comes off the top rope with a senton splash and literally lands with his ass right in fucking Kevin Nash's face. Kevin Nash stands up and gets pissed, starts throwing real punches, and fucking power bombs him for three, like right then and there. And so this caused a bunch of dissension. Pierre Lafitte has his say. Here's the click with their say. Matt, at this point, the click is really causing a bunch of shit, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're causing so much havoc, they might as well have pumpkins and be celebrating for Halloween uh, for the other company because it's it, it's and it's sort of the thing like reality television where stuff is plainly obvious on camera mm-hmm. uh, and even though there's storylines you you can't deny it so there's that that line between reality and sports entertainment uh, is really blurred whenever the clicks involved. So. Brett starts this match with this pirate with a suicide dive onto Pierre on the floor. But this is a kind of a botched spot because he jumped a bit too far, didn't he? <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. This looked painful. Yeah, the, the reason why he didn't do this all that much. Exactly. Brett then sends Pierre into the turnbuckle, and Pierre sends Brett into the corner, followed by a series of punches. Pierre charges at Brett, who moves, and then Pierre hits the corner. Brett gets a, knee, a few knee drops on the arm, followed by an arm bar. And then Brett gets a crucifix pin for a two count, leading into another arm bar. Lawler dares Brett to say something to him so Lawler can beat him up. Pierre Lafitte counters a hip toss attempt with a clothesline. Pierre stomps on Brett's stomach repeatedly. He takes control by countering Brett with a kick to the chest. Brett then goes for a running attack against the turnbuckle. And, oh boy, this never happens. Pierre moves. And Brett goes shoulder first into the turnbuckle. <laughs> the funny thing about this, Matt, he does this not once but twice in this match. Yeah, I know. And, but but this is one of the more physical matches that Brett had around this time. Definitely. Uh, like, he took a lot of bumps in this. You know, not a lot of rest holes in this one, though. 
Um, no, definitely. Which if there's someone who would be doing that kind of style, it would be Brett, but it, but he doesn't. Yeah, Brett comes back with a back body drop over the top rope, and Pierre lands on his feet, and he whips Brett into the steel steps. This is good stuff. Brett then tries to come back with punches and a running attack, but Pierre hits him with a spine buster for a two count. And then Vince calls Pierre one of the most underrated competitors in the WWF. Which is an accurate statement, because I think that Pierre, you know what, he's doing good work here. Yeah, he's keeping up with Brett, which, you know, mm-hmm. they always say you carry someone to a good match, but I think deep down it takes two people, more often than not. Yep. Well, you spoke too soon about the rest holes, because here's Pierre to apply a chin lock. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you think it's a back elbow, followed by a leg drop for a two count. Brett breaks free from a submission attempt with a running sunset flip for a two count, and then gets Pierre in a clothesline. With, he hits Pierre with a clothesline. But Pierre, he gets a sidewalk slam in. He then goes to the top rope and hits a very impressive leg drop. That leg drop looked fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, got a lot of leg drops on this show. Yeah. (laughs) He then signals for his finisher. He goes up top and jumps off with the cannonball. But Brett moves and Pierre hits the mat really hard. And then JR's like, that's the first time I've ever seen Pierre miss that move. That's why I love JR on these. And like, he's not a color man here. He's the third man on this broadcast, like you mentioned, Matt. But when he adds those little things, it really adds a bit of realism, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Brett gets back up with an atomic drop, a running clothesline, and Pierre kicks him out of the ring during a sharpshooter attempt. We're teasing this. Pierre runs the ropes. He does a somersault dive over the top rope, using the ropes to assist, and he lands back first on the floor. Great bumping here by Pierre Lafitte, too. Yeah, and even with those those blue pads, you know, it's still not a trampoline that you're hitting. Oh, no. There's no give on those fucking things. Brett whips Pierre into the steel steps. He then whips Pierre into the turnbuckle for his own sternum bump. And then Brett gets a punch to the gut, followed by a Russian leg sweep. He gets an inside cradle for a two count, followed by a backbreaker and a diving attempt off the middle rope. But Pierre gets a boot up to block it. Pierre has Brett on his shoulders, leading to a rolling senton slam for two. He catches Brett on his shoulders, but then Brett lands on top, and he gets a two-count himself. Brett then sends Pierre into the turnbuckle. Pierre gets a knee up and gets a two-count with his foot on the ropes. Brett gets a drop kick in and then goes for a bulldog, but Pierre shoves Brett into the turnbuckle for another sternum bump. (laughs) That fucking chest x-ray on Bret Hart must be extremely fucking interesting to look at. Yeah, I'm not sure the, I'm not sure just that kick is what gave Hart a stroke. Yeah, exactly. Brett then bounces off the ropes with a running forearm, and he tries another attack. Pierre moves, and Brett hits the ropes. Pierre goes up top, jumps up with the headbutt, and Brett moves again. Brett then runs the ropes, leading to a running crossbody block collision spot. Brett applies the sharpshooter while they are on the mat, which was a great spot. I always love when Brett did that. Oh, yeah. Well, that's kind of a callback to the perfect match he had at 91 SummerSlam. Yeah. Great point. He then turns it over. Brett applies the sharpshooter full force, making Pierre tap out to give Brett the submission win at 16 minutes and 38 seconds. Fans popped really hard for this. And you know what? Even as a Bret Hart dissenter, I really like this match. Oh, yeah. This is why Brett was you know, the workhorse guy, because he could have these kind of matches with anybody. Probably Pierre's best match as a singles wrestler. You know, he had some good stuff with the Quebecers. But I like how it was 50-50 for a lot of it. You know, Pierre got a lot of offense in. Mm -hmm. You bought his near falls. And a lot of Brett's uh, matches, you know, he dropped the middle rope elbow or the pile driver. You didn't see a lot of his outside of the sharpshooter. 
they didn't see a lot of his monic you know, big match or big move monikers uh throughout this. So it kind of felt different than a lot of and like I said, it's a lot more physical than a lot of the matches he was having. Nowhere near as uh finesse heavy. Definitely. And by the way, great news, Matt. Brett gets his leather jacket back. Oh, I'm sure he could have bought another one at WWF.com. Or by calling that VHS. Yeah. That they keep plugging on this show. Oh, he did a really weird plug here in a bit. So, we go backstage for another interview in the Camp Cornette locker room with Yokozuna standing there with the British Bulldog. Jim Cornette, Mr. Fuji, Gorilla Monsoon, and Doc Hendricks, they're doing the interview. Cornette says that even though Bulldog has wrestled once tonight, he knows he can get the job done. And Monsoon is officially sanctioning Bulldog as one half of the tag team champions for one night only. They recap the situation, and Cornette says that he's got a lot of confidence now. All right, Matt. The plug of the night. Does Vince McMahon ever look back and say, that is why Alundra Blaze threw the title in the trash on Nitro? She's the woman's champion modeling a fucking in-your-house triple header shirt. I don't think Vince McMahon has a lot of regrets in life. I really don't. That's a good point. Uh, and if he did, this would not be one of them. <laughs> Why? This is ridiculous. You have your woman's champion modeling this fucking shit. Because he, he's done so many far more egregious things. I'm not say- Look, I'm not saying it's a dastardly thing. I'm just saying the fact that your woman's champion is doing this instead of, I don't know, well, wrestling. Also, woman's wrestling was a like uh, a distant memory around this time. Like it, it was sporadic. They... They would care, and then you would not see the woman's belt be defended for, like, six months. Good point. Um, and, and it got even worse. Like, you know, Lady Attitude Era, most of them weren't even trained wrestlers. You had fucking Sable and Step mm. and win the women's title, and, uh, <laughs> you know, we're a year or two away from China. China, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of a... Alundra Blaze was the last of the... She was holding the fort down, and then... Uh, then I think this was the thing that set her over the edge and said, all right, I'm jumping ship. I don't know. Marlena was pretty good at those rest holds. <laughs> all yeah, right. Speaking of resting, I had to go to the bathroom after this minute. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Time for the main event with Yokozuna and British Bulldog teaming up for the first time as tag team champions against Shawn Michaels and Diesel. All right. Remember when there was only three titles in a wrestling promotion? You know what? Honestly, this is all. I, well, no, because WCW had a ton of titles too. You know. Yeah, no, but I'm not being sarcastic. Like back then, WWF had a world champion, you had an IC champ, and a tag champion, and a women's champ. Like that was it. So it made this match feel more important. So Michaels is starting off with the bulldog, and Sean's avoiding some power moves, leading to a back body drop, followed by a cross body block over the top rope to the floor. Yokozuna goes after Michaels, so Diesel punches him to knock him out of the ring. Michaels mocks Yokozuna's posing and standing in the ring, which I actually kind of giggled at. They tease a sumo-style confrontation with Michaels sliding under the legs and Yokos <coughs> stopping a running Michaels with a back elbow to the head. <laughs> I love when Michaels sold like this, man. I mean, he, he sells that fucking hit like he was hit with a fucking shotgun. Well, have you seen Yokozuna? I mean, it's kind yeah, of... Yeah, that's true. It's realistic selling a guy who's like 600 pounds by this point. Definitely. This is not even the biggest he'd get. He'll move. He can still move. Like, he was still mm-hmm. a viable presence, but... He was yeah, getting up Sean, there. Sean overselling here makes much more sense than uh, a certain match he had with Hulk Hogan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to get to that match. I don't think I've ever seen that match. Yoko hits a body slam, 
And then Michaels moves as Yokozuna hits the mat, trying to go for an elbow drop. Diesel gets tagged in with Yoko hitting a clothesline. And then Diesel hits him with a leaping clothesline, followed by a boot to the face that knocks Yokozuna out of the ring. Bulldog gets a cheap shot elbow. At this point, Yoko's looking exhausted. Yeah, he, he got blown up pretty early. Definitely. So Bulldog, after doing a 12-minute match with Bam Bam earlier, is going to have to carry this thing. Yeah, I mean, he literally carries Diesel for like a 15-second suplex. <laughs> yeah. Bulldog tries a vertical suplex on Diesel. He can't get him up for the first time, and Bulldog does do it the second time successfully, though, for a two count. That was probably a minute of the match right there. Yeah. (laughs) He then, guess what, applies a chin lock, but Bulldog then goes for the running power slam. Diesel reverses it, sends Bulldog into the turnbuckle, and Diesel hits a running clothesline. Diesel gets another running clothesline in. He hits him with a body slam, and then Michaels gets the tag and jumps off Diesel's shoulders with a splash for a two count. Bulldog comes back with a press slam, sending Sean Groin first across the top rope. Yoko then elbows Michaels off the apron, and Yoko's the legal man, so he whips Michaels into the turnbuckle. Bulldog hits Michaels with a body slam on the floor. You know what's interesting about Michaels and Bulldog? And we're going to get into this the more we talk about this. But at this point, they'd already had their match for the Intercontinental title back in 1992, which Michaels won. Then they had the Royal Rumble in 1995, starting off with Michaels and the Bulldog. Guess what? Michaels won that. Then we're going to have a feud in the next year that we're covering. King of the Ring 96. King of the Ring 96 and uh, Beware of Dog 96, which... Michaels won both of those. Actually, you know, one of them was a false finish, pretty much, uh, no contest. And then, you know, and then the King of the Ring, he ends up winning. Yeah, and you have one night only in 1997. I mean, this dude just owned this motherfucker. <laughs> well, it helps when you have all the when you have the political stick that you can wave. But but they had really good chemistry whenever they, they did. You know, and Bulldog for being pretty well built. You know, he was very athletic, and, and you know, Sean was you know as good as anybody. So, you know, and they did 90% of the work in this match. Bulldog and Sean do mm-hmm. almost, they do almost all the, all the in-ring work. Yep. Bulldog's back in for his team with a back body drop on Michaels. I always love when Michaels took that back body drop because he looked like he hits the ceiling every single time. <laughs> well, you could tell he emulated Ric Flair because he sold it like he would. Yeah, he does. There's one that he gets hit with, and I think it's Survivor Series 90, that me and my friend Omar still laugh at to this day. I mean, he goes super high. I think the Warlord gives it to him, and he is so fucking high. I, I'm surprised he ever landed. I'm Go. sure that was the only way he was high around that time. <laughs> Save it. Bulldog then applies a chin lock. Uh, Michaels hits a sunset flip, and then hits a crossbody block for another two count. Bulldog comes back with a clothesline. Yoko gets tagged back in with, guess what, a vice grip. That was his fucking move around this <laughs> throughout his career, was grabbing someone by the shoulder for about five minutes. And again, at this point, he is looking just so fucking blown up and tired. So Sean gets back up. Yoko delivers a headbutt. Yoko then goes to the middle rope, but Sean moves, and Yoko did a bonsai drop onto the mat. I love I just, how this is where the crowd starts shaving USA. Yeah. <laughs> Which is one of my, like, you know, we talked about, like, least favorite wrestling cliches on the on last week's show. Uh-huh. Uh, Evil Foreigners is, like, pretty close to my least favorite because he doesn't get the, the dignity of, like, you know, everyone from America, it's from town, comma, state. Yokozuna, it's just from Japan. 
Like, everyone else should just be from the USA. Well, the funny thing about that is that's kind of what the WWF was built on back in the Hogan rock and wrestling era. And also, what's really funny is Ventura would be the one to call that out because I remember Royal Rumble 89, the Hart Foundation and Hacksaw Duggan are facing the Rujo brothers and Dino Bravo, right? And fucking Bret Hart is stuck in a fucking chin lock from Dino Bravo for like six minutes or something. And the crowd starts chanting USA. And Ventura's the one who says, why are they chanting USA? Bret Hart's from Canada. <laughs> because if there's one person who cares deeply about America, it's the future governor of Minnesota. <laughs> Diesel gets the hot tag against the Bulldog with Diesel hitting a back body drop. Then he gets the snake eyes onto the top rope. I love that snake eyes move that Diesel did, which was established when he was Vinny Vegas. Uh, yeah, well, that's where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. Although Undertaker would do it better, I have to say. Because Undertaker was far more athletic. Not only would he hit the snake eyes, he'd run to the opposite yeah. rope and hit a big boot to follow up. Yep. You Diesel, know, because Kevin Nash was never someone who could do any semblance of cardio. And Kevin Nash will be the first one to tell you that, too. Diesel gets a running splash onto the Bulldog's back against the ropes. He then hits a sidewalk slam. And then Bulldog is whipped into Yoko. And then Bulldog is whipped again. And he did a flip into Yoko against a turnbuckle. Diesel gets a boot to the face of the Bulldog. Michaels punches Cornette off the apron while Yoko hits a Samoan drop on Diesel. Michaels hits Sweet Chin Music super kick on Yoko to knock him out of the ring. Bulldog hits a power slam on Diesel, but Michaels makes the save. All right, and, uh, another cliche I hate. The referee should have disqualified Michaels. Like, the match <laughs> should have been over. Um, you know, because this is like the, the uh, WrestleMania 9 with Hogan and Beefcake against Money, Inc., where... Uh, Hogan is in DiBiase's Million Dollar Dream, and Beefcake just runs in to deck, to deck DiBiase, and the referee doesn't ring the bell. Like the babyfaces are acting like heels. I know. This leads to Owen Hart. He finally shows up. He runs down to the ring in his wrestling gear. He jumps off the top rope. Diesel punches him in the gut and then hits the jackknife powerbomb on Owen. So Owen shows up, gets two moves, Ends up doing the job at 15 minutes, 42 seconds. Sir, what do you think of this fucking match? That's uh, a bad ending. I agree. Uh, very, very awkwardly done, because there wasn't a whole lot of, like... There was no tease that he was going to show up, and he, lose, and he loses in two moves. Makes him look really bad. It sucks, because, you know, a match with three titles on the line should have a stronger finish. I agree with that. Yeah, and this makes... Shawn Michaels and Diesel, the new tag team champions. For 24 hours. For 24 hours, yeah. And Michaels is the Intercontinental Champion. Diesel's the world champion, so they have all the belts. Is this another power move by the Click? I think so, but at least it was only for a day. They had a story reason where it's like, Owen was not the legal man. Like, he wasn't sanctioned. He got replaced by Bulldog. So the next day on Raw, Gorilla Monsoon reversed the decision. But at the same time, you knew that they were really going to start pushing Sean as the guy. This was sort of step number two, because he had just regained the IC title from Jeff Jarrett, but Diesel was going to lose the belt to Brett. So it's kind of like one was going up, and one had already reached the mountain and was starting their decline. But this was sort of the one of the last big notable things for Yokozuna, as far as like main eventing shows, because mm-hmm. uh, he'd start to you know fall down the card after this, largely because of, I think of his weight issues. Jim Ross always details stories that every time he went out to eat and saw Yoko, he would be dipping his fucking drum- drumsticks into mayonnaise and eating them. 
Another just depressing story there. All right, Matt, that does it for In Your House 3. Scale of 1 to 10, what do you rate In Your House 3 Triple Threat? Uh, Even though it's Triple Threat, I'm not going to go a 3 on 10. It's higher than that because I think the second half of this show is is pretty darn good. It's under two hours collectively, so it doesn't drag necessarily because... I've watched eight-hour WrestleManias in my lifetime, and oh. God, I'd, I'd rather be doing jury duty than watching some of those WrestleManias. <laughs> but I think it kind of saves a lackluster first half, and I think last lackluster as an adjective is me being kind. Uh, it's more like boring in the first half. There's, you know, a lot of a lot of slow matches, not a whole lot of intrigue in the storylines or anything like that. So, I think it's the combination of the Brett-Pierre match and this main event as awkward of a finish as it was sent the fans home happy on a good note in a better way than Fall Brawl 95 did because that ended on a somber note even mm. though the the babyfaces won the main event. Mm. Here the babyfaces won the main event and they won't get fucked until the next night so fans at least got to go home happy on this evening. So I'm going to land on... I'm going to land on a 6 on 10. It's the second half really helps push it into the, I guess the the thumbs up. If I was to you know give it a a, a finger rating, but it's a marginal one at best because the the first half is not great. I only go five. Much like last week, I think this is a two match show. I think Razor and Dean Douglas had the potential to be really really good, but it just the the finish of that one sucked as well. This is a tale of the British Bulldog and Shawn Michaels and Diesel. British Bulldog is throughout this entire show. And then Shawn Michaels and Diesel, obviously, they get the final shot of the fireworks and them holding up all four belts. I, I, I think, much like last week, this is a two-match show. And I'm going to say which one I like better for in, for a little bit. But this is a 5-on-10 because I just, that first half, man, there was, it was really tough to get through those matches. This is WWF at, you know, we're, we're seeing it at its most 1995, you know. We're, we're seeing very good stuff and very bad stuff. In this instance, the good stuff barely caught up to the bad stuff, but it, it was a run, that's for sure. All right, Matt, your best match, your worst match, your highlight and your low light of the show. I would say the best match by far is Brett and Jean-Pierre. I, I don't think it's close. Worst match is tough, but I'm going to go with Sid and Henry Goblin because not only was the match dull, uh, it was a cheap babyface pop after the match to, 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 to get some you know favoritism back into it. So that whole segment could have just been cut, if you ask me, because they threw that match together uh, really haphazardly beforehand and it didn't deliver to justify it. As far as a highlight goes, I would say uh, Jerry Lawler's commentary during the, the Bret Hart match is great because he laughs every time Bret is taking any sort of punishment. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as far as a low point, it's got to be the, the Alundra Blaze uh, self-shameless publicity that Vince put upon her. Like, you couldn't have had Todd Pettengill giving away a house or something. <laughs> they did that a couple shows ago, and I'm not sure if Vince McMahon had enough money at this point to warrant giving away a house with how much money Diesel's title run was taking out of him. I'm very similar to you. My highlight is definitely Bret Hart and Jean-Pierre Lafitte, despite the awful storyline 
that that, that match had. I mean, that storyline is just ridiculous. The pirate steals the coat. They put on a hell of a hell of a match. It was very, very good to see Bret Hart once again carry somebody to a close to four-star match. I would give that probably three and a half stars. My least favorite match is like you, Sid and Henry Godwin. Just no heat. Nobody gave a shit. Uh, I think Henry Godwin's trying, Sid's trying, but there's, the crowd is all for Sid. And unlike you, I do think the slop at the end of it what kind of saved it for me because it, it at least gave the fans something to actually respond to in that match. My highlight of this was seeing the British Bulldog actually live up to everything that he was being pumped up to be. I forgot how big of a push he had towards the end of this year. And they're really setting him up here. Despite the fact that it was all set up by Owen Hart's wife having a baby, British Bulldog stood up, uh, stood out to me in that he wrestled Bam Bam Bigelow to not just uh, you know one of these small seven-minute matches. He wrestled a big dude for 12 straight minutes. And he's coming back to do the main event. And that main event was fast-paced, and he lived up to it. I don't think he was blown up, unlike Yokozuna, bless his heart. So, yeah, Bruce Bulldog was the big uh, highlight for me. Low light for me was Waylon Mercy and just a wasted opportunity to have a great character do some things that I believe that character was way ahead of his time. I know Dan Spivey put a lot of thought into that character. It was creative, but Spivey really took that character and he was kind of uh, a big part of the promos and things that that backed that character up. But after this pay-per-view, he's not long for this world. He's gone pretty quick. That's just sad for me is to see Dan Spivey just not live up to that potential. So, 5 out of 10 and (sighs) another show that doesn't really... uh, it's living up to 1995 standards, I'll say that. All right, next week we are going to go back to the WWF, aren't we? I believe so. In a pay-per-view that was so notorious that Vince McMahon threw down his headset as it ended. Yes, he did. Oh, my God, I can't wait to talk about that. Yes, 1995, another big highlight is uh, the ending of that pay-per-view. And, oh, my <laughs> God, it's, it's something. And after that, we're going to talk about Halloween Havoc 95. And before we know it, we'll be out of 95 and digging into 96 but matt how do you think the um, how do you think the first two shows went it could have been better i'll say that but i also don't think they were the worst product that either company would put out that year i'd still put in your house above wrestlemania 11 or the royal rumble of that year for comparing the two shows i would give wwf the slate edge with in your house three over fall brawl so i'll give them the the first battle in this long-ass war we're going to be covering, and even we're skipping battles because we're not reviewing head-to-head weekly shows. Mm-hmm. I'll go the other way. I think Fall Brawl, I think the emotion behind Ric Flair and Arn Anderson was more than anything that this show that we cover today put out. I, I, I just think that match, yeah, it carried that show. We mentioned that last week, but uh, for me, Fall Brawl holds the Holds a slight lead, but you're, but that main event compared to this main event, I would definitely watch this main event and the Bret Hart match before the War Games of 1995, for sure. All right, that does it. Until next week when we talk about In Your House 4, Great White North. We'll see you at the matches. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>